and uh, coming through it chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And for a while now, we've been dealing with Romans chapter 8, which deals with the uh, two adoptions uh, of our body, our spiritual adoption the day we get saved, and then the adoption of, of our body when, when we get the glorified body at the rapture of the church. But we were talking about Romans chapter 8, and we talked about how the infirmity that we don't know how to pray. And that took us into a great study, a great study on prayer, and we looked at all the different aspects of that. And I told you, you know, all through this, and you've heard me say now for over six years that we've been together here for the most part, you've heard me say over and over again how important biblical principles are in your life. And I, I think sometimes that, uh, you know, in my, I think I know what they mean, uh, and I use the term, but many times some of you don't know what it means. And um, so I, what I want to do is I want to take these next couple of weeks, and I don't know for sure how long we'll do it, but uh, I, I want to give you a good understanding in greater detail of how do we use biblical principles. And I thought about this a lot. I thought how I wanted to do this, how it would be the best way to do it. And I told you a couple of weeks ago, I gave you a verse in Isaiah chapter 55 that really dealt with and laid out, you know, really what our problem is. And that great passage talks about the fact that the Bible says that uh, God's ways are not my ways. His thoughts are higher than my thoughts. And we come to the conclusion through that that uh, this is our dilemma, this is our problem. God thinks on one level and we think on another level. The real key in our lives to really everything that we deal with is getting on the, basically, we use the phrase today, get on the same page with God. Get our level of thinking on His level of thinking. And I told you that biblical principles are simply uh, in its most basic form. Bible principles, and we're going to explain them today. I'm going to go in and I'm going to give you a good foundation of what they do for you first. I think, I thought this thing through for the last couple of weeks. I have to first give you an understanding of why they're so important. And then I, I'm going to take uh, probably 30 or 40 of them, maybe more than that. We're going to lay them out and we're going to talk about them and show you how that they're used in different aspects and try to give you a good, good handle on how to use those. When we talk about principles, and uh, we talk about, uh, sometimes they're called precepts in the Bible, but when we talk about principles, we're talking about simply getting God's mind through the Bible, understanding what God's opinion is on every subject that is in the Bible and every subject in life. And then we take those principles that we learn and we apply them and use them to make the right decisions in our life. I love, uh, I don't know how many of you have one, but I use mine all the time. Uh, we, there's a dictionary that uh, we, we have here that uh, and I've told you about for years and years and years. It was put out in 1828 by Noah Webster. Now you know Webster, if Webster's Dictionary. Well, the edition of Webster's Dictionary that you would go out and buy today is not the same one I'm talking about. Noah Webster was one of the founding fathers of our country. And he was an educator that really wrote most of the curriculum that were used in the public school system when this country first got instituted. He was the same man. And he really loved the Lord, and he, he understood the bottom line of, of, of principles. And that's why in the early school system, teachers as students, as the whole system, was built on principles. And uh, you'll find that uh, uh, many times uh, I use his dictionary because most of the time, and you don't find this today, 
But most of the time in his dictionary, when he defines a word, he will use uh, a passage of Scripture in a King James 1611 authorized version to show you the true meaning of it. He doesn't always do it, but many times that he does. And, uh, you know, uh, principles and precepts, back in the days when we understood what it meant, when Noah Webster wrote his dictionary in 1828, uh, it, it went along with the Bible's definition of it because principles or precepts are directives that give you and me a rule of action in our lives. Let me say that again. A principle is a directive. It's something that you read that directs you toward a a rule of action in your life, what you're going to try to accomplish, and it gives you the action that you must take to do that. Principles are the fundamentals of all structure of all truth. There's no question about that. It's the principles of the Bible which the Bible is built on. And, you know, and, and I want to talk to you as we get going here today, I want to talk to you about the reasons why Bible principles are absolutely essential in your life. In fact, I'm going to make a statement, and that statement is going to be uh, simply this. You are probably not going to survive uh, in this world that we live in without biblical principles and adhering to them in your life. I don't know of a greater time in the history of the world where there has been more absolutely confusion about everything in life. Uh, the old adage that I've said for years and years and years, and I said it as a joke, but it ceased to be a joke, and it's a true statement today. I used to say years ago that America is an insane asylum run by the inmates. And uh, that's come to a reality today. So the first thing I want to do is I want to talk to you about what Bible principles do in your life. And I'm going to give you four or five things. You want to take these four or five things and bring them all the way through our lesson. You'll find me going back to them over and over and over again, showing you how they all <coughs> correlate together. But let's talk about, first of all, let's talk about the reason why we have to have Bible principles. The main reason that I find in my own life, uh, and it's so true in everything, is that they, uh, the Bible principles always simplify, and they take the confusion out of everything that we face. You and I are going to be faced with circumstances in our life, and those circumstances many times are going to be confusing. They're going to be overwhelming in some cases. We saw it in Job's life last week when we finished out our study on prayer. And when you come to the point where when you have something in your life that you have to deal with, there's going to be decisions that come into your life that when you're faced with them, you're not going to know how to deal with them. There's going to be decisions in your life that sometimes seemingly are going to try to, it's like it's going to overwhelm you. And you're going to find yourself in maybe three or four different circumstances all at the same time where it all comes down on you at one time. And, and you're in a position where if you make the wrong choice, if you make the wrong decision, it can lead to a chain of events or a chain reaction rather uh, that is going to really make the problem even worse. Biblical principles, number one, will always simplify any circumstance that you find yourself in. Biblical principles will absolutely take the confusion out of everything that we face in life. That's the greatest thing that it does. It absolutely cuts to the quick, everything that uh, you have to get into. You know, people come in to see me with problems. 
And sometimes they're basic problems, sometimes they're very complicated problems. And I can see many times when people come into my, my office and we sit down that they're under a lot of weight. Uh, they may have problems with their children, <clears throat> they may have problems with their, with their marriage, they may have problems at work, they may ha have lost their job, they may have, have some area in their life that is weighing very heavy on them. Most of the time they come in to see me, they, they, they don't know what they should do. And they're coming in to me for advice. Now, I don't operate in the realm, and I told you this before, I don't operate in the realm where I just give people my, my homespun philosophy of life, you know, take two aspirin and call me in the morning, so to speak. What I do for them is what I have to try to do for myself. Because what Bible principles do, when somebody comes in and sits down and tells me what they're going through, while they're laying out and telling me what they're, what they're, what they're up against, I'm thinking through the process of the principles in the Bible that I can give back to them. Now, I may not be able to solve their problem that they have at that particular time, but what I can do and what I need to do and what you need to do and understand is what Bible principles do is that takes a very complicated circumstance and puts it into a perspective for you. Thursday night we had, in, or Friday night we had Institute. I had several of you tell me this. I had several of you tell me that, <coughs> that uh, <coughs> you know, uh, we started the book of Hebrews in our Bible Institute. And I, and I told you that, uh, you know, uh, and, and laid it out for you. I had many of you come to me afterwards and even last night uh, and talk to me and tell me how that you have read the book of Hebrews probably a hundred times and been through it many times on yourself, but you never, you never got it, you never fully understood it. It never, the lights never came on. You never saw it the way that it, you needed to be see it till you came Friday night and you, you saw me lay it out and I gave it to you in a nutshell and you went out of here saying, now I may not understand everything about the book of Hebrews, but I have a handle on the book of Hebrews I've never had before. Now, that's not because I know so much about the Bible. That's not because I'm such a great teacher. But it's simply because I have learned in my own life, and what I did for you is what I did for me. What I did for you is what I do when you come in and sit down and tell me about your problem. I took a very hard book of the Bible, one that is very complicated, one that 99.99% .99 of preachers, pastors, theologians in the world could never begin to figure out, and I broke it down for you and you went having it in perspective. That's what principles do for you and for me. If you've got marital issues or children issues or personal issues that are very daunting and very confusing, the only way you can get the smoke to clear, the only way you can, you can get all of it, the things that don't matter out of the way, and, and when, what you're left with is what you've got, what you've got to work with, and then you see how, how you're going to work with it. When most people leave my office after we have an hour of going through that thing, usually the weight is lifted off of them. The weight is lifted off of them, but not because I've necessarily solved their problems. But when they come in with a very confusing scenario that had them weighted down, all I did was take the weight off of them, give them a plan and show them no matter what circumstance they find themselves in, I will show you a step-by-step -step process 
to get out of that scenario you're in. In other words, they come with no plan and they leave with a plan. They come not seeing the perspective, they leave seeing a perspective. They come with their problem and all of the side issues that really don't matter, but clouds the judgment and, and clouds everything that we look at. And biblical principles blows all of that away and leaves you with what you really have to deal with and then shows you what you've got to do to accomplish to get through it. Biblical principles in any given situation in your life will always make the things that you have to deal with a lot easier. They'll simplify the issue. They'll give you a perspective. They'll give you a plan. My favorite word in the Bible, and it's the favorite word used in Solomon, they used in Proverbs. Another thing that it does for you, this is still number one, by the way, is it when it does all of this, we call this discernment. Being able to look at any given circumstance. What will make you people good counselors? What will make you people, and some of you are becoming very good counselors because you're not only taking what I'm giving you and you're not only doing it in your own life, but then you're taking to the next step, which really puts the icing on the cake. You're dealing with other people in their lives, and I don't know of anything that makes you better, faster, quicker to learn the material that we're talking about than to take what I'm doing and then use it in somebody's life. I, I'm telling you, you can look across this church for those that have been here for the full duration or most of the duration, and you can see the ones who have went through the process that are working with people and the ones that have haven't ever started working with people. There's a, I guarantee you, there is a vast difference between their understanding and discernment of things in the Bible because they're not just taking what they're learning and putting it inward, they're using what they learn and it 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 compounds the learning process in a greater way. And you're going to find that when you use biblical principles, it gives you the discernment. Most people don't see the problem as it really is because of their confusion, because they're in the middle of it. What you do as a counselor or in your own personal life, what the Bible does for you is it clears all of the smoke away and allows you to see what you're dealing with in a more simplistic way as God sees it. Now that's the first thing principles do. And you need to learn these four or five things because they're, they're vital. This is why I have to do this before we really get into some, but you'll get into some today, I do believe. <clears throat> the next thing it does, <clears throat> that biblical principles take the guesswork out of any issue of what you're dealing with. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 20, uh, 33, that God is not the author of confusion. God isn't the author of confusion. If you're, confused, if you're a Christian, let me just say this. If you're a child of God this morning and you have some issue in your life that you're dealing with or you're faced with, and it may not be a bad deal. It may be, it may be something that is a good thing, but you have to make a decision and you're confused about it. Let me just say this to you. Whenever you have a situation in your life that you're not clear through a biblical principle on and you're confused on, don't make any decision about that decision. Because the Bible principles will come in time. And I don't know what circumstance you could even be imagine you could be going through this morning that if you came in and sat down with me, I couldn't help you find one. We had a little, after Thursday night Bible study, you come up and you said, I need, a, I need a principle. Remember that thing? What did I do? I said, right here's one. Here, just like I flipped you a quarter. See? 
Did that help? Please say it did because you're on the spot. Okay, good. If you said no, I was gonna, I'm out of business. I'm just going to quit. Because that's what they are. They take a scenario that, that you're faced with, and what it does, it, it, it takes the guesswork out of it. It takes the guesswork out of it. The devil operates three ways in our lives as a child of God. He counterfeits Christ. He confuses the situation. And then after he counterfeits and he confuses, he deceives. And Bible principles always take the deception away. It's absolutely impossible, absolutely impossible for you as a child of God to be deceived or confused if you just follow the biblical principles and you don't know the biblical principles, then don't do anything till you find one. If you will follow those two basic simple rules in life, you're not going to make a lot of bad choices in life because you're limiting you're limiting uh, what you get into. And the bottom line is the reason why, the reason why that it takes the guesswork out of it is one simple rule. God never violates his own principles. The devil will deceive you. The devil will counterfeit the principles. He'll make them look real good. He will put something in your heart that you just know has got to be right. But when you got into the Bible, you found out that's not what the Bible said. Bible principles, if you don't have them and you don't learn how to use them, in the day and age that we are living in, you're going to have some serious issues if you haven't got them rolling in your life already. All right, the third thing that Bible principles does, it always takes the confusion out. It always takes the guesswork out. The third thing that it does, that it, it, in any situation that you and I are faced with, it takes the emotion out. Now, I'm going to tell you, our biggest enemy in our lives is our emotions. I'm just going to tell you that. Our biggest problem that we face is what we feel. Now, you can just put a big red star by this one. The biggest problem we have is our emotions. And the Bible says, one of my favorite verses in Proverbs chapter 25, verse 28, He that hath no rule over his own spirit is like a city broken down without walls. You have no defenses against what comes at you because your emotions control the situation instead of you controlling your emotions in your situation. And what the biblical principles does, takes your emotions out. Bible principles will override our emotions to keep us from making emotional decisions. There's times in my life when I felt like I wanted to do that. Well, I'll give you a good example. I mean, this is basic and stupid, but it's one that you can grasp. When somebody has said something to you or ticked you off or really made you mad, is there not a time in your life when you just almost came to the verge of letting them have it? I mean, seriously, you just, you just came short of just pairing them up. Now, what stopped you from doing that? Other than the fact that he was a lot bigger than you are. <laughs> no, what stopped you from doing that? Well, if you're a Christian, I hope several things stopped you. One, you stopped yourself because you knew that that's not what a Christian should do. If you're just a guy with common sense, you realize that uh, you hit somebody today, 
they're going to sue you for everything that you got. And you're going to go to jail for battery. And then you're probably going to have to go through, it, it gets worse. Then you're going to, you're going to, they're going to say, the judge is going to say, well, you're, you have an anger problem. And so you're going to go to an anger management classes. And then you're going to get sued. And then the next time you get, you have a little altercation, somebody's going to say, I want to put a, I want to put a bond of protection against that person because he's already got a track record of being a violent person. See how it goes? That's how it goes. What stopped you was a principle. What stopped you from laying them out was the fact that, whoa, if I do this, and I really want to, if I do this, and you're singing a song, all I want for Christmas is your two front teeth. You know, that's what you're at. But you stop because a principle came in and blocked the punch. See? Well, that's what principles do for you in every area of your life. There's things that I will face things that you will face, that your first reaction is going to be an emotional one. And you've got to have the biblical principles because if you take the next step and make a decision based on that emotion, then you're in trouble. Then you're in trouble. Something has to take the emotion out of it. <clears throat> Something has to give you a perspective so your emotion doesn't get to the place where it runs you that you run it. And then there's another factor to this. And it's, I think, the most important. We're human beings. The older we get, the older we get, the less we have to give to God because of the fact that as the older we get, the more we slow down a little bit. There was a time when I could go 24-7 all day long, all week long, and do whatever I had to do and never even phase me. I don't do that anymore at 58 years of age. And, uh, you know, it's a thing where uh, you realize that you only have so much emotion to spend. You remember over in the Gospels, and this is a great little illustration. Remember over in the Gospels, in, about, in Luke chapter 6, verse 19, that Jesus was there and there was a crowd around him? And somebody reached out and touched him and got healed. And the Bible says that Jesus didn't see who touched him. But he knew somebody had touched him and he got healed because the Bible said virtue went out of him. That ever make you wonder what that virtue went out of him was? I mean, how did something go out of him? What, what went out of him? I mean, all they did was touch him and they got healed. But what went out of him that he recognized that, wow, I'm now a court low? <laughs> if I can put it in that terminology. In my case, it's more than a court. <laughs> uh, you see, virtue is spiritual strength. In this particular case, it was spiritual healing. Let me ask you a question. And I'll speak to you folks who work with people. Have you ever worked with two or three people in the same day, or maybe just one person for a long time, and you know how exasperated and wore out you are at the end of that session? I know on my weekdays, I take appointments at five, six, seven, eight, sometimes nine. And I know I, I, at the, uh, God helped the one at nine o'clock. Because I think I just answered your problem with a guy that came up at 6 o'clock and I didn't even figure your problem into it. <clears throat> no, I didn't do that. 
But do you know what? At the end of a six-hour dealing with people, you're exhausted. You know why? Because you've taken your emotions that you have and you, your strength and you've doled it out to people who needed it. Now that's really what the ministry is. You know why some of you, now don't take this in a bad way, but we're talking about reality here. You know why some of you will never make good counselors? You know why some of you will never be a help to other people? Don't take this wrong, but it's the truth. You don't have anything to give. You see, the spiritual strength that you give, you have to amass yourself. You have to learn the principles yourself, and they're in there. That's why you can start out in the morning and just really be all fired up, go through day of work and giving and giving and giving to people, and that's why you're tired at night. Then you got to go back to bed, and God charges up the battery, so to speak. Well, it's the same way spiritually. You and I only have so much emotion to expend into people. Therefore, we got to be careful where we expend it. Spending it on things that don't matter and leaving nothing for the ones that do matter, that's where the problem lies. Emotions is a damaging thing in a Christian life. The Bible needs to tell you, and this sounds very cold and callous, and I'm going to talk about this a little bit later on, but the Bible, the Bible ought to tell you when, where, and what to feel on every given circumstance and show you the measure by which you feel it. Oh, nine tears, I'm done crying. Not that simple, but kind of like that. Don't waste tears on things that don't mean anything. Don't waste tears on crying for things that don't really matter. Don't waste putting energy into things that bring no return for God. But that's what we do. And when you understand that principles guide your emotions and that what you think, how you feel, and you don't waste the emotions on it, then you have, you have more to give God what He needs. All right, that was the third thing. Is that correct? Okay, here's the fourth one. Yeah, we talked about how that it, uh, it takes the confusion out of things. We talked about how it takes the guesswork out of things. We talked about how it takes emotions out of any issue. Now, here's the best one. It removes the family and friends out of any issue. You realize how much you are influenced and I am influenced or people are influenced to do the wrong thing when you know to do the right thing by family and friends? There's tremendous pressure on us. When our kids grow up, we talk about peer pressure. And of course, peer pressure is, is pressure from kids that they go to school with that you're trying to teach them to do right and their friends at school are trying to teach them to do wrong. So they feel pressure from their peers across the board, people that are the same place that they are. Well, family and friends do the same thing. And there'll be times when you have to make a decision. Somebody said one time, blood is thicker than water. Now that's an interesting little phrase to me, and I've heard that all my life. And one day I sat out and analyzed it, and I thought to myself, you know what, that sucker's just reversed the way it's supposed to be. Blood should be thicker than water. When we say it, we say blood is thicker than water, and I don't even know what that term really means, blood is thicker than water. Really? But in reality, from a Bible standpoint, blood should be thicker than water, because water represents your physical birth into your family, and blood represents your spiritual birth unto God. And yes, blood should be thicker than water. You ought to put the things of God over your friends and your family when your friends and family go against what the Bible says you're supposed to do. Blood should be thicker than water. No question about it. I agree. That's a great, great saying. I had a friend of mine a number of years ago, show you how this thing works. 
number of years ago, I had a friend of mine who was pastoring a church in Florida. No, it wasn't. It was Alabama. And, uh, you know, in the, in, in the South, everybody's related to everybody, you know. Like a guy said one time, we've not been able to prove a capital murder case in Arkansas for the last 20 years. And the guy says, why is that? He said, because everybody's got the, nobody's got any teeth and everybody's got the same DNA. <laughs> There's a lot of truth to that. <laughs> when you get down south, everybody's related. You know, it ain't like up here in the north. Down south, everybody's related. You got Billy Bob and Jimmy Bob and Robbie Bob and Dobby Bob and Jimmy Bob. I mean, they're all hand tied in there together. And this guy had a church of about two or three hundred people. And uh, he had, you know, and that three hundred people was made up of about four families. Uh, everybody related to somebody. And he told me, and this is, I've used this story many, many times in dealing and teaching people how to counsel. He told me, he said, you know what? One of the, and I don't remember all the details, it have been so long ago, but he says, one of, the ki- one of the teenagers got into a real jam and did something really bad, really stupid. It was bad enough that the, that the church had to deal with it. And I just, I can't remember what it was. But he did something really bad that the church had to deal with. And they, they dealt with it publicly because it was that big of a deal. Well, what happened was that... Some of the family who were not as spiritual as probably what they needed to be, they got upset because they didn't like, first of all, that their, their nephew, uncle, brother, kid, son, whatever the case may be, was brought before the church. It didn't matter what the kid did because family tie, blood was thicker than water in the wrong sense. And it got to the point where the, when those kind of situations that always happen, the devil gets into detail. And here's a situation at the end when it was all done, he said, I lost 60 people out of my church. 60 people out of my church that were all connected through blood relationships over this issue because they felt like the issue uh, that I handled the issue wrong. And he handled the issue absolutely biblically. There was no question about what he did wrong. And he said, you know what the sad thing was? He says, I had deacons in my church that were connected to this family who told me privately that I was doing the right thing. But publicly, they caved in to their aunts and their uncles and all of their family because the fact they did not have the courage to stand up uh, for, and back me on the situation that I had to deal with here. And because of that, you know, it, it, and, and the end result was not that I lost 40 people in the church or 60 people in the church, whatever it was. He said, we, we got through that. The problem was 90% of those people are not going to church anywhere now and are right back out into the world. All because God's people, who were supposed to be leaders, couldn't take a stand for what was right in the Bible over what their family squabbles were all about. And that's a shame. That's a shame. You see, biblical principles is what builds leadership. It's what really builds leadership. It's absolutely what builds leadership. It removes not only the confusion out of it, it removes the guesswork out of it, it takes the emotion out of it, it takes the family and the friends out of it. I've known Christians, I've seen Christians that were struggling and had some real issues, and other Christians should have saw their struggles 
But because they were not concerned about the ministry aspect of it, they just looked at it as a good time. They went ahead and encouraged them in other things instead of things that they should have been encouraging them in. And then everybody scratches their head and say, why is so-and-so back down into the world? You know why? Because they're friends. Their friends didn't have the courage to stand and say, you know what? We're not going to do that with you. We're going to go to church. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. Why don't you come with us? They didn't have the courage to do that. I'm telling you, biblical principles, when you operate by them, it will separate these things out of here. Because these things I just gave you is what's going to stop you from ever being used of God. Because you've got to get to the point where you live by them and not what everybody thinks about you or what everybody says. Now, the last thing that it does, and this will be the fifth one, and this is probably the most important, takes you and me out of the issue. I want to tell you something. You know why Catholics like going to the Catholic Church? And if you're a Catholic here this morning, this is not, a, this is not an indictment against you. It's just the truth. You know why Catholics like to go to the Catholic Church and be in the Catholic Church? Because they love somebody else taking care of their religion for them. That's why. I went into a, as in France one time, and I went into a, 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 one of those big, 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 beautiful cathedrals over there, you know, and they had a little shop there in the out. And when I went out there, everybody was looking around in and, and trinkets, you know, they were selling. And I saw a couple of night things that looked like little necklaces. And I said, uh, I said uh, uh, what are these? And the lady says, these are called scapulas. And I didn't know what a scapula was. I thought it was a scalpel. I thought, well, I don't, you know, it's a scapula. What, what is a scapula? She says, if you have one of these on the time you die, you have a 75% chance of going to heaven, just like that. <laughs> well, being me, Bob, you know, the great mind, I said, well, give me two of them. You know, I'm going to wear them both. That's 150%. I got it in, see? But you know what? You're laughing, but don't you know that if, if, if your Christianity and getting to heaven wasn't that simple, wouldn't that be a good deal? Who wouldn't want that? I just got to wear a little thing around my neck, you know, and wear it, and I'm, I'm guaranteed to go to heaven. Boy, if that was true, that would be a good deal. Problem is, it isn't true. See? People like to go to churches, places where you don't have to worry about keeping it. You can go live yourself any way you want to, and then show up one day a week, and the priest will take care of everything. You can run back out and do it again. Who wouldn't like that deal? I mean, I like that deal, but you know what? It doesn't work that way. I don't, I, you know what, I trust, I was going to say I trust all of you, I don't think I can say that. I trust most of you, no I trust, I trust all of you, but you know who I really don't trust in here? Me. I don't trust me. I trust you much more than I trust me. You know why? Because I don't know you as well as I know me. I know me. I know me better than anybody in here. I know me. And you know what? I can't trust me. And when I'm faced with some major decision in my life that may alter the course of my life or alter the, my, uh, my family or my, my, my whatever, do you, do you really want to take responsibility for that and say, I'm going to make that choice? How about if it's worse than that? How about if it's somebody else's spiritual uh, well-being? How about this? How about it if somebody going to heaven or hell based on what you tell them? Do you really want to step up to the plate and say, well, I'm Bob spiritual, I'll just tell you? Do you want that on you? Do you want to make that? Do you have the ability? I don't. Do you have the ability to make that kind of decision and choice on your own? I don't want to make that. I'm like a Catholic. I want somebody else to make it for me. You know who makes most big decisions for me? 
the biblical principles. Takes me out of it. I'm the last person that needs to be in it. I guarantee you. Because my emotions will get involved. And I'll see it the way I want to see it. On top of that, Jeremiah chapter 17 already told you what my heart is. It's deceitful. Desperately wicked. Above all things it says. Because I know me. Let me tell you something. I didn't survive in the ministry as long as I've survived with the adversity and the adversaries that hate my guts down through life without figuring how to survive and just as, and play the game better than they did. And I'm telling you, that's a good side to that and there's a bad side to that. The good side is I'm still here because God gave me the wisdom and the discernment to be smarter than they are, wiser than my enemies for they're ever with me. The bad side of it is I can manipulate things for bad just like I can for the Lord, see? And I don't want that side of me in charge. I want some safeguards that keep me from working the system to get what I want and then rationalizing it in the process. I'm going to tell you something. The only way you can know for sure, I'm going to tell you something. But I've said a lot of things up to this point, but you can throw it all away and just remember this one thing and you'll probably go farther in life than if you hear everything else and miss this. The only way, the only way, the absolute only way that I know that it's not me doing it and it's really God doing it is by the biblical principles that I follow. If you don't have a biblical principle, and I'm going to show you the, the verses here in a moment. If you don't have the biblical principles in your life by which you were operating by, and you don't have them clearly defined and detailed out that you are seeing them, following them, touching them, tasting them, handling them, you have absolutely no proof that it's not you just doing it. I don't want that. I don't want, hey, I know what the first 19 years of my life was when I was in charge. And I'm not like a bottle of wine. I don't get better with age. Now, Having said that, I want to give you the defining passage on biblical principles and how they work. And it's found, as you might guess, in the book of Proverbs. Now, I told you to go to Proverbs chapter 4. Here we go. I'm going to read it for you. Chapter 4, verse 1. Now, this, you want to mark this in your Bible. This is the definitive passage on biblical principles and how they work in your life and my life. All right, here it, here's where it goes. Hear ye children the instructions of a father, and attend to no understanding. For I give you good doctrine, forsake ye not my law. For I was my father's son, tender and the only beloved in the sight of my mother. He taught me also, and said unto me, Let thine heart retain my words, keep my commandments, and live. Get wisdom, get understanding, forget it not. Neither decline from the words of my mouth. Forsake her not, and she will preserve thee. Love her, and she will keep thee. Now, here it comes. Wisdom is the principal thing. See that thing? There's your word principal right there. <coughs> wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom, and with all thy getting, get understanding. Exalt her, and she shall promote thee. She shall bring thee to honor when thou dost embrace her. She shall give to thine head anointment of grace, a crown of glory shall she deliver to thee. Now, Father, we ask you to take this time today and to bless us. We thank you for everyone here. We uh, Lord, we pray that uh, this will make an impact and change uh, the direction of people's lives and how they look at things. And Lord, we just love you and thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. For a sake we ask it. Amen. Now, this is a great passage. And notice the first thing he says here in verse 2. He says, for I give you good doctrine. 
All right, we know that doctrine means to teach. Then he's going to give you good teaching. Those teachings will be the principles. Let's see how it works out. Look at the next thing he says. He says in verse 4, He taught me also and said unto me, Let thine heart retain my words and keep my commandments and live. All right, you'll find a similar thing in that in Psalm 119 where it says, Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse thy way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Okay? And you, you hide the word of God in your heart. You take those principles, the commandments, and you put them in God's words, God's commandments, the principles, the rules of living, and then you put them in your life. Now watch. Get wisdom, get understanding. Forget it not. All right, look at verse 7. Wisdom is the principal thing, therefore get wisdom, and with all thy getting, get understanding. Now, the Bible just defined the wisdom of God as principles. He says wisdom is the principal thing. Then the wisdom of God is found in the principles of God. But then he didn't stop there, did he? He didn't stop there, see? He says, get wisdom. But with all that getting, get understanding. How do you do that? Once you recognize that the wisdom of God is the principles that are found in your Bible, once you realize that and see that they are the principal things, take those principles and apply them into your life, now you have understanding. You know what understanding is? Understanding is to, be, is to be able to look at any circumstance you find yourself in life or any circumstance you're dealing with somebody in life and know where to go with the biblical principles that give them the right answer. That takes the confusion out of it, it takes them out of it, it takes their family out of it, it takes their emotions out of it, and puts it right down and simplifies the process of what they've got to deal with. See how easy that is? Now this is going to be a good series if you're paying attention. Some of you probably won't bother, maybe some of you even bore you. But I want to tell you something. Do you think this isn't vital? Look at verse 8 and 9. Exalt her and she shall promote thee. What's the punctuation right there? What is it? A colon. All right. Exalt her and she shall promote thee. She shall bring thee to honor when thou dost embrace her. See that little colon there? Exalt her and she shall promote thee. That's right now in your life. Colon. She shall bring thee to honor when thou dost embrace her, that's the judgment seat of Christ. That verse shows you what it does for you now, and it shows you what it will do for you then. Look at verse 9. She shall give to thine head an ornament of grace, colon, right now, later on, a crown of glory shall she deliver to thee, judgment seat of Christ. See that thing? That right now, when you exalt it in your life, she promotes you. Right now, when you, when you take it and exalt her, she, she, she'll give you a, a head, uh, an, ointment of, an ornament of grace. What does that mean? It means that you will start to operate in the realm of biblical principles using God's grace in dealing with circumstances in your life. And later on, it shows you what it will take care of the judgment seat of Christ. Now that's how you and I should operate. And that's how basically a church ought to operate. That's why there's no politics involved in this church. And there never will be. That's why there's no favoritism in this church. That's why nobody with a, a lot of money could come in and flash a couple hundred dollars around and, and, and buy their way in and, and get this or get that. And that's why that nothing in this church and this ministry is based on a popularity contest. I mean, verse, I don't know if you caught it or not, verse 8 said it best. You know what it said in verse 8? It says, exalt her and she shall promote thee. You know, this is an army. We're supposed to be an army. Now, I know that's a foreign concept today. I know that most churches don't use our hymnals anymore. You know what the reason why they don't use the hymnals anymore? Because they don't like those songs that talk about war. 
Somebody said one time, you can't get a good choir to sing on with Christian soldiers because you got too many conscientious objectors in the choir. That's probably true. Probably true. This book is filled, you got to see them time. It's filled with war, battle, blood, shields, swords, tear them up, shoot them up, blow them up, kill them up, let God sort them out. That's what it's all about. And in any army, there's no favoritism in the army. Sergeant doesn't care how much you, money you got. You know what a sergeant cares about? You know what a captain cares about? You know what a field grade major cares about? He cares about what you do on the battlefield, and what you do on the battlefield determines your promotion. Now, I know the, I know the, uh, I know the uh, uh, Salvation Army is pretty much a social service thing anymore, and when, it, when General Booth started it, General Booth, by the way, was a Civil War general. And he come out of the Civil War, we saw legs hacked off, blown off, shot off. He saw an eyeball blowed out, heads blowed off. He saw the most horrors of war. Because he was a saved man, he said to himself, you know what? He said, I'm going to develop a system for God based on the armies that I fought with. And so he saw the Salvation Army. Instead, instead of killing people, this one was about saving people. For years and years and years, they put out a little paper in the back. When their old soldiers died, you know, they had it under their heading, promoted to glory. I like that. See, I don't promote you. You had to go to Acts chapter 16 sometime and see how Timothy was picked to go with Paul. The pastor didn't come down and say, well, Timothy's mom just gave a big old money check to the church, so we'll send her one with Paul. No, no, no. He got promoted through the combat of Christianity. That's how Paul and Barnabas got called to go to the mission field. It wasn't somebody said, well, Paul, you know, he's got a great personality. Boy, everybody likes him. Let's send him. No, he got promoted through the combat of Christianity. Promotion cometh down through the whole battle. And that's what makes you. It's what you do. It's what you learn to do with what the principles say that make you valuable in our combat right here. I don't promote you. Wisdom and understanding promote you when it is displayed in your life. You take somebody to come into the church and their life was messed up, their marriage was messed up, their family was messed up, and just about everything was messed up, and then four or five years later, everything that was messed up is now right or as right as it can be, <coughs> and then you see somebody else that came in four or five years, same time period, four or five years, they're still screwed up, they're still messed up, they're still making the same stupid mistakes. Hello? It isn't me saying, well, this one's good and this one's bad or this one made it, this one didn't. The wisdom and understanding that you put in your life promotes you. That's what verse 8 says. We're in a war. We're an army. No politics, no favoritism, no money to buy your way in, no popularity contest. We're in a battle. And the soldiers that fight the best get the promotions. What don't you understand about that? And all through your Christian life, as you add to their repertoire as a Christian, and you learn how to fight this battle, use the armor of God, be a soldier for Jesus Christ, you get promoted. Then look at Psalms chapter 75, verse 6. Just turn over there real quick. 
After you go through Christian life and you go through this life of learning and growing and being promoted by the wisdom and understanding that you get, by using biblical principles in your own life and then God using you to put them in the life of somebody else. But ah, the catchphrase there is you can't use them in somebody else's life until you get them in your own life first. Look at Psalm 75, 6. I love this. This is talking about the rapture. For, for promotion cometh neither from the east nor from the west nor from the south. Look at the next verse. But the Lord, that's my final promotion right there. Right now in your life and in my life, Proverbs 4, 8, you exalt wisdom, you get wisdom and understanding, you let the principles get into your life, it'll promote you. God will promote you and do things with you that you never dreamed possible. All through your Christian life, you're, you get promoted. But then one day when God says, I'm ready, you get the final promotion. We get to go to heaven. That's how it works. No, I love people. I'm a, you know, I wish you could have met my dad. My dad died many, many, many years ago. But I bet you, I, I would have I I loved, you would, you would better understand me if you had met my father. My father never met a stranger in his life. My father, my father, I, never, I don't ever remember him having a cross altercation with, other than his, my, my mother, I, <laughs> with anybody in life. My, my father was a people person. He was gentle. He was kind. He was caring. He, he'd do anything for anybody. And my mother, on the other hand, was just the opposite. My mother, on the other hand, was someone, and she's still alive, and she's changed a lot. I mean, I, I, I mean, I, and my mother and I, we have a great relationship, and I, and I love her to death, and she loves me, but uh, she has grown so much through life and is so better, and so better today than when she was. But I, I, remember, I remember that uh, in, in my mother's side of the family, they had a point where they could just cut you off, and you were gone. And, and, and you know what? I don't know what happened. I was 10 years old, 11 years old. My grandmother, which was my mother's mother, was staying with one of her brothers, my Uncle Milt. They lived up about 40, 40 miles. Something happened, and I don't know to this day what it was. They were always feuding and fussing about something. They never got along. My, my mom's side of the family had like, like four or five brothers and two sisters. I mean, it was humongous. My dad had, you know, he had like, they had like 10 brothers. My dad was born in a log cabin. I mean, I'll tell you where I'm coming from. <coughs> and, <coughs> and I'll never forget, my mom and her mother got in a fight about something. And I don't know what it was. But my mom cut her off. My mom said to her, I remember as a little guy, because I was hiding in the corner because I was scared to death. <coughs> my mother said, I never want to talk to you again. And she's using a lot of superlatives that I can't put in because my mother could cuss like a sailor. She, 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 she said, I don't want to see you again. I don't want to talk to you again. I don't care if you blankety-blank die. She said to my Uncle Milt, I wish you would have blankety-blank but died in the war. I mean, she just put them on him and broke the relationship right there. Ten years later, never talked to her. Never talked to her one time. Never talked to her. Don't know where she went, what she did. We went back to Maryland. That's where we're all from. 
we went back to Maryland. And I went back on my dad's brother. My dad was dead then. And my mom and I went back. And we went back there uh, to my Aunt Nettie's, which was my, my father's sister. And we went back there. And uh, they took me deer hunting. You know, my uncles and all that. And that's another whole story. And then there was a little church down over the hill where my grandfather was buried, who died way before my grandmother. So we went down to see grandpa's burial place. You know what? We walked up to that tombstone. And there was not just Carl Burkett being buried there, but Ethel Burkett, his wife, had died four years before that point. My grandmother, my mother's mother, had been dead four years, and my mother didn't even know it. And when she looked down there and saw that she was already dead, it never moved her an inch. Now, I'm a, I'm a hybrid of those. I'm a people person. I'm like my father. In fact, many times I feel like that, <clears throat> I feel like that boy that <clears throat> his mother was black and his father was a Japanese. So he was a mixture of the black race and a Japanese race and he was very confused. And every December 7th, he attacked Pearl Bailey. <laughs> I'm like that. <laughs> I'm like that. <laughs> You can see my dilemma. <laughs> I love people. I'm like my father in that set. I really am. I get very attached to people. I, I really do. I, I can get, it's real easy for me to get attached to people because uh, I, I'm so thankful for what God has done for me and I know what God can do for them. And when I see somebody that just halfway tries, well, I mean, I could just... I just do, I just, I just, I just want to do whatever. In fact, I got to be careful because I, sometimes I violate my own principle and I get too much involved and I just got to, but I'm, I'm like, in my dad, I'm like my, I'm like my father. But there's a shot of me that's like my mother. Because no matter how much I love people and how I get attached to people, that's my father's side. My mother's side tells me that I never let friendship come between the Bible principles in my personal life or ministry. Harry gave us a great testimony. Where's Harry at? Back here. Mind if I just give a little capsule there? Harry gave a great testimony. Harry came to me, see me a while back, and Harry wanted to get help Kyle with the youth. And I said, well, Harry, you know the problem you got. Harry had smoked cigarettes for 50 years of his life, and he's only 26. <laughs> <coughs> and I said, I said, those, I said, those things got to go, Harry, because I can't have you be an example to these kids. And I said, if you get it, and now how, how, how long are you clean now? A month and a half. If you met a month and a half, you can make it. That nicotine gum you're chewing there today? Okay, good deal. Better yet. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. I know some people that put them little patches on, you know. I, that's when I smoked. I, did, I said, I put mine over my eye because I didn't know what to do with it, and I'm blind in that eye. But, that, but I'll tell you what, that eye doesn't smoke. It doesn't smoke. <coughs> no desire. And you see, and the bottom line is this. I say that to say this. What Harry did is he, he came to me and I said, Harry, if you want to do this, this is what he did. You know what it was? He wanted to serve God. The, the, the serving God became more important than the cigarettes. Now, about three or four months ago, we had another family in the church and they left the church. Mad at me. And the reason why they left the church because the lady came to me and she says, I want to I disciple somebody. 
And I said, well, you and I know with the problem you got, you're going to have to, you're going to, have to quit the cigarettes because of the fact that I'm not going to let you disciple somebody when you can't have victory in your own life over something. Well, where Harry said, yes, sir, and did it, she got mad and said, well, I'll find another church. My answer to her was, you know what, in the infinite wisdom of God, that's why we put two doors in that one, one for you to come in and one for me to go out. I love you. I care for you. I think you're the nicest, one of the nicest people in the world. I love your family. It's too bad for them. But you know what? Bible principles are Bible principles. And what is right is right for everybody. It isn't, it isn't something that we pick this here and we pick that there. I've had people that were my friends remind me over the years, uh, you know, how long they've been my friends and how they've stood with me through the tough times and how loyal they are to me. And Hey, I'm going to tell you something. I never forget what people do for me. I stand before you with a lot of problems today, but one problem, what are you shaking your head for? <coughs> I stand before you with a lot of problems today. Do it that way. That's my girl. I stand before you today with a lot of problems, but I'll tell you one problem I don't have, it's ingratitude. I remember what people do for me. I never forget what people do for me. I remember something that somebody did for me 30 years ago. I never forget what people do to me. And, and loyalty, loyalty to me is a rare thing today. In the ministry, loyalty is an absolute necessity. And I personally am a very loyal person. But in the ministry, the two can never override biblical principles. It just cannot. If you're going to be a pastor someday, or you're going to be in the ministry, or you're going to be a leader, <coughs> their lives must, must run <coughs> through the ministry and their families based on clear biblical principles. You cannot allow people to touch the lives of other people whose lives are in disarray or do not have the victory in their own lives and are not following the biblical principles. If your life is not operated by the principles in an area, you know what? Friendship is a great thing, but never let it override Bible principles that we live by. Your loyalty needs to be, before it ever comes to me, your loyalty needs to be in the principles of the Word of God. That's where your real loyalty lies. Now, <clears throat> And this can be a problem for me. And this, a lot of this today is my own personal stuff because I don't know how else to tell you. But, but this can be a problem for me. Because I try to be, I, I, in my life I've tried to be so principled, and there's a good side and a bad side to everything. I've tried to be so principled that I've got to be careful that the principles don't override my emotions so much that I don't feel any compassion for people. Now if somebody, I, I, can, I can sit and watch the news. And I can watch something unfold in a tragedy in somebody's life, and I can sit there and weep. And I'll weep for a number of mixed reasons. For the probably lost, for the they're, they're in, something that I can relate to. I will sit there and weep. <clears throat> I have very little sympathy for Christians who have had a chance and had the Word of God and had everything, and then turn their back on it and walk away, and then something befalls bad falls them. It's hard for me, and I work on it every day. <clears throat> it's hard for me to spend a lot of emotion on something like that when, I, when, I, when it was very clear to me that, you know what, if you'd have just stayed with what you were doing in the Word of God and not went back to the world or whatever, you wouldn't be in this scenario. I, years ago, I had a kid in my, my college and career class. And he was a kid that, he was one of the nicest guys you could ever meet in your life. And he, he for about three or four years, he really, really did well. And then he got hooked up with a gal, and like always, you know, he was coming to a good church that taught the Bible, and he got hooked up with a gal, and she went to another church. So he started going to that church, 
That church didn't teach the Bible, didn't have what he was getting and what he needed. So it was only a matter of time. You know how the story goes. It was only a matter of time. They, she moved on, he moved on, except now he's, he has, he's lost the Bible principles that he's had. He's caught up now, and so he's right back into the world. And for the next three or four years, for the next three or four years, he, he went right back to the world, drinking, smoking, doing all the things that he did. One weekend, they went down to the Lake of the Ozarks for a big old power-drinking fast boat-riding, water-skiing fun time that you ever want to have. And they went out there, you know, drinking at night, running on the lake, going out and chasing everything around the world, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And on, and, on a, and on a Sunday morning, they were out there water skiing about 6 o'clock in the morning. And he's out when the water's very calm. And, he's out, and they were still drinking. They still, had, they still hadn't sobered up from the night before. And they're up there and they're driving, you know, and yeah, you know how you drive a boat when you're drunk. I know how I drive one when I'm sober. I couldn't imagine me driving one when I'm drunk. Well, anyway, he was water skiing. The guys were all drinking, all drunk. He fell down, the guys laughing, turned around, went back to pick him up and just split his head like a canoe with the boat. Killed him deader in a doornail. Well, I get a call Monday morning. And I know this family. No, I know this family. I get a call Monday morning. And they asked me if I would do the funeral. And I said, you know what? I said, I think I'm going to have to pass on the funeral. I said, I think I don't, I don't think I can, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to preach the funeral. I said, there's, wherever funeral home you're going to, you know, for another hundred bucks, they got somebody on call that will take that and do the funeral. Because I knew, I knew, I knew what was expected of me. I knew what was expected of me. It was expected of me to get up there and talk about how wonderful this kid was. I also knew that probably his funeral were going to be 300 kids just his age or all his buddies from school who probably in the same situation and only maybe a heart's beat away from where he is in eternity. And I'll tell you the truth. I could not just get up there and, and use a bunch of nice, fancy, foamy things about how great he was without getting up there and saying, ladies and gentlemen, all you kids down here, I want you to understand, he is dead this morning, and the bottom line is this, he would still be alive if he'd been in church on Sunday morning instead of been out there with you guys. That's what I wanted to say, but I knew I could never say that. I knew that the family wouldn't accept that. I didn't really care about the people that were out there, but I knew the family didn't want that. They want, like most funerals, you know, they wanted a celebration. You ever notice how in the obituaries, it's all, in the funerals, it's all a celebration of life? See, for a real Christian, there should be no celebration of life. It ought to be a celebration of death. And that's what I wanted to do. I figured, you know what? He was a lousy witness the last four years of his life. Please, if he could come back right now, and he could, if God would give him 30 seconds to speak to us, you know what he'd say? He'd say, Bob, preach the hardest message you can and tell them where I'm at and why I'm here that, and that somebody else doesn't get messed up just like me. But how do you say that to grieving parents? See, that's something I, <coughs> I struggle with. And then, <coughs> you know, so they ask a, another guy to do it. And he, <coughs> he didn't really like me anyhow. So he wanted to hold it over me, you know, because he didn't know they asked me first. So he comes over to me and he says, well, he says, uh, I got called to do so-and-so's funeral. And I said, oh, did you? He says, he says yes. He says, uh, he says uh, I was quite surprised that they didn't ask you to do it. And I said, oh, they did. He said, well, why didn't you do it? I said, because, you know what? This is going to be the defining moment in your life, pal. 
Because you're going to do one of two things. You're going to get up there and tell the truth for 300 kids out there that are probably lost. Or you're going to follow the song and dance routine that everybody expects us to do. And you're going to get up there and talk about everything instead of telling them what the real bottom line is and why this kid is dead this morning. So I said, let's see what you got now. You wanted it? You think you got one up on me because you, did, you, you got it and I didn't? Let's see, if you could, let's see if you're ready to hit the ball. They're going to pitch at you up to the plate. You're in the big leagues now, son. You know what? He folded like a broken deck of cards. And I sat down there in the third row, and I just watched him the whole time. Never took my eyes off him. When he was done with that sermon, he couldn't even look me in the face. See, I, have, I struggle with those things. I struggle with those things. Because I don't want to lose. I, you got, I, it, for me, it's a balance. Most people can't separate the two. Remember last week I told you that just as, as uh, last week I told you that the victory of God in our lives is not on the top of the hills of life, but it's where the real victories are down in the valleys. Okay, well let me just give you something to associate with that. Real leadership is not the ability. Real Christian leadership. Real leadership is the ability to make the Bible choices based on biblical principles, not when everything is life is easy, but when it's hard, when it goes against your family, when it goes against your children, when it goes against the popular mode of things. But you know it's the right thing to do biblically because that's what the principle says to do. That's the real mark of leadership. That's the real challenge in people's lives today. And most of us do not make that grade. And boy, thank God for the few that do. Now what I want to try to do in the next couple of weeks is show you how these principles work. I'm going to take 30 or 40 of them from all different areas. I can't do them all that I'd like to do. I can't explain them all. We're going to do this in with conjunction with Thursday night Bible study that I maybe not will define it the way that you wanted to, but then on Thursday night you can bring it up and we'll talk about it and I'll, I'll give you the whole thing there because there's just no way I can do. I, I want my purpose is not to define them all. My purpose is to show you where they're at and how you get them. We're going to start with the basic ones and then we're going to work up to the very complex ones. Now, when you start to talk about biblical principles, and you start to talk about how to find biblical principles in your Bible, you find them three ways. There are three ways that they're found in your Bible. The first way is you're going to find that some of the books in your Bible, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, will contain a complete picture of what we're faced with in our overall principles. We saw that last week in the book of Job, didn't we? You see, the book of Job is a whole book that shows you the struggles that one man went through for seven days. So sometimes you'll find books like that. The book of Exodus is another one. Remember back when we were going through each book of the Bible? You can get this on the website. The book of Exodus starts in chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4. Shows Israel down in bondage with Egypt. Picture you and me before we got saved. They cried out, I needed to deliver. God sends them a deliverer. Moses, you cried out. God sent you a deliverer, Christ. And then they get out of Egypt. Picture the world by the blood on the door. Sacrificing a lamb. And then every chapter through Exodus shows you some other addition to your Christian life that you need to put in it. Now that's a whole book too. I told you Thursday night how the book of Colossians, I showed you in chapter 1, how the book of Colossians, the whole book's a picture of the latency in church. 1 Corinthians, it shows you what the whole book shows you what's wrong with the church. 2 Corinthians shows you what's right with the church. So the first thing you find is you find it in books in the Bible. Now, the second way you're going to find principles in there, there's going to be revealed through 
passage of scriptures, or what I call stories. And these will be from anywhere from four to ten verses to maybe two or three, four, five, six chapters. And we know, both know them like stories of Adam and Eve, see, story of Noah, story of David. They will be found in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Gospels anyhow. And again, they will illustrate some major principle that you want to get into your life. And with those, there'll be about 20 or 30, 30, 40 other sub-principles that'll go along with it. And they'll usually always tie up the principles in the New Testament. Then the, the third way you're going to find them is what I call singular or uh, singular verses. And I call these standalone principles. Now, these are what you put on your three by five cards that so many of you do. Now, these standalone principles are like chicken wings. Notice I said chicken wings, not chicken fingers. <laughs> when you order, order chicken wings, they say, well, we've got three kinds. We've got mild, we've got hot, we've got nuclear. Right? And I'm sorry that everything in the Bible I equate with food, but you know what? <clears throat> I do that so I won't forget to eat. There are some single verses in there, standalone principles, that are mild. You just look at them and you say, wow, that was good. There are some in there that, that you find that are standalone, that they're hot. You go, whoa, that was really good. Well, I can use that. Then you find some in there that just knock your socks off. You, man, you, ima you can't imagine how one verse can contain so much weight that just abs those are nuclear. Those are, whoa, wow, you got to sit down and take a breath when you see those. And that's how you find principles. Now, your Bible says in Proverbs chapter 20, verse 18, it says this. <clears throat> it says, this is the principle. This, you want this one. This is, a, this is a stand up one. This is one of the stand up one principles. And this is a, this is a wow wow. Proverbs 20, verse 18. Every purpose is established by counsel. And with good advice, make war. See, that's a good principle especially in light of what we read in Romans chapter 8, verse 28 last week, when it says, all, uh, uh, all things work together for good, or they're called according to his what? Purpose. Well, now you got a, one that says that every purpose, if you're called to his purpose, the Bible says every purpose is established by counsel. That counsel is principles. Principles. All right, now let's look at some. Let's get some good counsel through biblical precepts. Now, the first one I'm going to talk about today, um, like I said, I'm going to start real general. <coughs> And then we'll tighten it down. The time we get done with these, I'm going to show you about how to pick a mate, give you some principles, what to do if you find yourself in a situation that, uh, you know, you're married and you have kids by other marriage or other relationships. We're going to go through the whole gamut. We're going to talk about personal issues that you may face. This is, you know, this series, and, I, and I, you know what, and the devil always knows how to do it <coughs> because <coughs> every, it, it, and nothing you can do about it, but for the most part, <coughs> Everybody in our church ought to hear this session. But the devil knows exactly who to get to go where with what, with who, and knows exactly who to get sick here, when, and there. And that's just what he does. The devil will always be in the details. But I'm telling you, this, this thing has the potential of fixing whatever problems you have. And I don't know what to tell you, but that's just the way it is. I mean, it frustrates you, but that's life on planet Earth. Now, the first one I'm going to talk about <clears throat> is something we can all identify with, and it's certainly an easy one to see, and it's certainly probably the most one that affects us in, a, in, a, in, a, in any of them all. And this is the dilemma we find ourselves in in America today. And I use this one because it's such a great example, and yet at the same time, it's such a pertinent thing in your life and my life. 
we find ourselves in an absolutely unsurpassed dilemma in this country. Not only in this country, but globally around the world. You've heard me say many, many times that <clears throat> the reason why there are no answers on the horizon for what we face today, you've heard me say many, many times that we are in the course where we're right before the coming of the Lord. There's certainly a time that we ought not to be operating in biblical principles. You've heard me say that obviously there is no leader on the horizon. There's nobody in America, not a Democrat or Republican, not anybody anywhere that can fix the problems that we've got. There's nobody on a global scale who can come up and answer all the problems. The problems in this country are so many and so diverse. They're so impacting. They're so compounded. They're so tied together that this country is, 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 like, a, is like a person when a ship sinks and he jumps off the, 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 the back of the ship right before it goes down, it, it pulls a great suction of that ship going down. And if you get caught in that suction, you could be the best swimmer in the world, you could be the strongest swimmer in the world, you could have five life jackets on. That suction is going to pull you down. The weight of the material that is sinking is creating the suction that nobody, unless you've got a greater weight than that, is going to be able to survive. And the problem is the suction is so great and the, de the destruction is so ravaging that you and I can't stay afloat. And that's why you've heard me say, the only one that's going to fix this is when the man of sin comes on the, on the scene. But he may not be here for a little while yet. <clears throat> I don't know of a more of a time <clears throat> that more people are confused, afraid, on the verge of panic. Hey, you know what? You listen to a thousand experts. Nobody tells you the same thing. Some people say, now's a good time to buy the stock market. Some people say, well, get your money out. Some people say, you need to buy a house. Somebody says, you need to keep your money. Everybody's got advice. Nobody's telling you the same thing. Everybody claims to be an expert, but then it was the very expert that got us into this mess in the first place. Somebody said one time, well, you believe that Bible. You know what? I believe that the real, I believe that the, the real salvation of this country and this world is in the great minds and the great professional minds that go on. I said, oh, really? I said, let me ask you a question. So you're telling me that my salvation and everything that's saving the earth is in the professionalism and the great knowledge and the great professionalism and everybody else out there that's just kind of going along in life, you know, and believe the Bible. We're just what? We're just, we're just laymen, you know, and we don't have anything. And he said, yeah, that's basically it. So let me ask you a question. <coughs> Who built the Titanic? Professionals. Who built the ark? An amateur. I'll stick with the amateurs anytime, anyplace, anywhere when they're based on the Bible. Now I want you to watch how the Bible takes away the smoke and makes this thing absolutely so simple for you to grasp. Bible says, get wisdom. With all thy wisdom, get understanding. Okay, understanding is the key. Bill O'Reilly, Rush Limbaugh, Glenn Beck, Sean Hannity, all those great guys, you know, they couldn't even get to this if their life depended on it. Now, if I had a radio program, here's how I'd open it up. Ladies and gentlemen, the world's in a mess today, isn't it? You see your 401? It's down now to 101. <clears throat> Next week, it's going to be 01. They're going to take the one off of it. We're in a mess. 
Now, you're probably out there, I just listened to so-and-so over here, read his book, read this guy over here, this book, read this guy over here, read this book, heard so-and-so on the news over here, read a newspaper this morning, I read Wall Street, read Time Magazine, Newsweek. Everybody's saying the same thing or different things, and everybody don't know what they're talking about. Now, I'm going to clear it up for you, ladies and gentlemen, because I'm Bob Alexander, and my radio program is built on the, uh, we, don't, we, we not only don't have a no-spin zone, we got an absolute zone, and that's where we're going to go today. <clears throat> now, you want to know why we're in the mess we're in? I'll tell you why we're in the mess we're in. Because the Bible operates on seven basic laws. We'll call them principles. And the whole world operates on those seven basic principles. There isn't anything in this world, ladies and gentlemen, that doesn't operate on these seven basic principles. Because despite what all the theologians say, and despite what all the atheists say, God is still God. I know He's still alive. I just talked to Him. He's still okay. And I'm telling you right now that, that this world that you and I live in, this physical flesh and blood world, when God wrote a supernatural book, He made the world, and then He built the world and set it on seven laws, principles. Now, you want to know what's wrong with America? Well, let me just tell you. In the last hundred and plus years, America has been actively involved in violating three of those major principles. For the last hundred plus years, the United States, your country, my country, have violated three of those seven laws. And what you're seeing today is nothing more than the effect of a holy God with a righteous book that says, this is the way it runs, and man saying, oh, watch us. We're going to run it this way. But now, ladies and gentlemen, but now, ladies and gentlemen, it doesn't stop there. That wasn't simple enough. You want to know why we're in the mess we're in? You want to know why we're not going to get out of this mess? You want to know why you can kiss your 401K goodbye and everything out with it? You want to know why that this, girl's, this world is not going to turn around? This country is not going to get better. It's only going to get worse. I'm going to tell you why. Because for the last hundred years, we added a fourth law to that that we began to violate. A fourth principle. That will be the final coup de grace. That means a bullet in the head. And that is the accountability factor of Galatians chapter 6 verse 7. It simply states this. When you take, we have taken the accountability principle out of everything in this country and you violated the basic principle, you do not, never, under any circumstances, reward bad behavior. Does it work in your family? It never will work in your family. You give your kids and give your kids and give your kids and give your kids and have no accountability in that. And then when your kids grow up and they, and they turn out one way or the other, then you scratch your head and you say to yourself, man, what happened to them at 15, 16, or 17? I'll tell you what happened to them. You, as your parents, you put no accountability in their lives. Every church has got them. I call them helicopter parents. Helicopter parents. You ought to get you one of them little beanies with a little copter blade on it. Wear it to church. Wear it wherever you go. Let everybody know you're a helicopter parent. You know what a helicopter parent is? It's a parent that flies around, and every time their child gets in a jam, they throw them a rope. They're there to rescue them. They're there to drop food. They're there to drop supplies. Every time there's a whim, the helicopter parents come flying in with a rope to rescue them from their dilemma. What's wrong with this country? 
Most parents, want the, most parents say to their kids, I went through some terrible experiences in my life, and I don't want you to go through those same experiences. And then never wonder why they not only do your kids go through those same experiences, they turn out just like you at the end result. You know why? Because they're not enough. There has to be an accountability factor. And this country has lost its accountability factor. It's lost the concept. Simply put, when you break something, you have to pay to fix it. And the principle in the Bible is it will always take longer to fix than it took for you to break it. That's just the principle of life. This country, the economy's broke. The housing market's broke. The banks are broke. The automakers are broke. The airlines are broke. Every functional system in this country is broke. Why is that? It's because of one, not two, one, one violated principle that we just keep bailing out more money after bad money after bad money and nobody is held accountable. The banks go broke. They say, we're going to go bankrupt. Our government follows the situation ethics. That the end justifies the means. That we've got to keep the banks afloat because if the banks go down, we'll really have a mess. Oh, really? What do you call this? So what you do is you give the banks $50 million, $10 billion, $100 million. What do they do? They don't lend any more people money. They give their CEOs $50 million bonuses. They go down to Pebble Beach. They have their big conferences that cost them $60 million. You go into your room at night, there's diamond cufflinks, nice watches, everything that you could ever want as incentives. Nothing changes. And we just keep printing more money. We don't have any money, so we borrow the money, so we do this, so we do that. And it all comes down to this. I can tell you how to fix this country in 20 minutes. It's the same way you fix your family. Shut off the spigot. Hold them to accountability. The automakers say, well, we're not selling any cars. Why should you? You're making cars that nobody wants now anyhow because you made bad business choices. Your workers are making more money than anybody on this planet. Your unions are running everything up the world, and now and then every car you build, you give your health care now, costs $1,500 per person. What are we going to do? Well, we just add that to the price of the car. It has to stop somewhere, except the difference is, ladies and gentlemen, it isn't going to stop. It's a basic, simple violation of one principle that will destroy your family, that will destroy this country, and will destroy you as an individual. If you don't learn, if this country doesn't learn the concept of personal accountability, personal responsibility, shoot down the helicopter parents. Boom, 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 boom. People can't manage their budget. They bought a house way over their head. They never thought about when they had to pay for it. I was telling somebody this week, I never forget the first time I took my uh, Kelly out to buy her first car. I bought both my kids their first car. After that, it's on your own. 
You pay your own insurance. You pay for all this. I'll buy your own car. We went out to look at a car. So we go down to a car place. That's where you go to look at cars. Anyway, we get down to a car place. I'm over here in the used car section. She's over here in the new car section. She's looking at the leather seats, sniffing it. She's looking at the CD player. She's looking at the dashboard. She's looking at the wheels. She's looking at the tires. She's looking at the spoiler. She's looking at the convertible top. She's looking at everything except the price tag. That's how we are in life. Somebody had to write a book, The Day Accountability Died in America. We pay out trillions of dollars with absolutely no accountability to fix what's wrong, and it keeps on going. We're doing nothing but treating the symptoms by throwing more money at the problem. It's the same way down in the inner city. Well, what do we do to fight crime? Better education. More money. Better facilities. You know what? That only means that when you give them better facilities, they will go buy a better can of spray paint to put the graffiti on it. Putting money to something never changed anything. It's the accountability factor that changes things. It's the principles involved. And who's going to fix it? The government. Who, if you want to read how to do your taxes, the government, who's going to simplify our problem, has a tax code book with 80,000 pages in it? It blows my mind what these people in this country allow to happen. It blows my mind that we're fast approaching a national debt of $4 trillion. It blows my mind that God's people, you know what, you sit out with somebody today, anybody, and you say you're over, over dinner, and you say to them, you know what, can you believe the national debt is over $4 trillion? And they say, oh yeah, that's bad. Would you pass the taco sauce? If you and I understood the concept of owing $4 trillion, you'd never sleep tonight. Who do you think is going to pay for that? I'll tell you, yeah, I'll tell you who's going to pay for it. You're going to pay for it. Your kids are going to pay for it to 10 generations. And it still isn't going to fix anything because this, we've lost the accountability factor. Continued spending without the money. It doesn't mean anything to us. A trillion dollars has no meaning. It has no principal value to you and me. If you had one $1 trillion in $1 bills, and you counted it out, one dollar at a time, for 24 hours, it would take you 9,500 years to count one trillion dollars in dollar bills. 9,500 years. If you take a dollar bills and, and put them in a stack of a trillion dollars, it would go out to the moon, come back to the earth, go back to the moon, come back to the earth, and it's 250,000 miles. One trip, one way. Oh, but that's not enough. If you had $1 trillion, you want a perspective? If you had $1 trillion, you could go out today and buy you five, $1 trillion. You could buy 45 million Ford Mustangs, brand new. 45 million. $1 trillion. $1 trillion. But that's not enough. In the last year alone, we now have added to that national debt and now stands at $4 trillion. If you take every 
dime, every dollar we spent from the Declaration of Independence, 1776, up to the year 2000, 2008. You could count the Revolutionary War, the Civil War, the Mexican War, all wars, World War I, World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and every social, every disaster, every dollar and dime that we spent from 1776 to today does not reach $4 trillion. Jesus lived 2,000 years ago. It's been 2,000 years since his birth. If you had $4 trillion and you spent a million dollars a day, not, not a year, not a month, a million dollars a day since the time Jesus was born till now, one million dollars a day, you still would not come to $4 trillion in debt. You know why it doesn't bother you and me? Just a number. We're like Joseph Stalin. He said, when one man dies, it's a catastrophe. When six million people die, it's a statistic. Boy, that's so true. We, 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 we just, we get more important things. You and your kids, your kids and their kids, the ten generations will be saddled with the debt that was spent and given to people and organizations that will never learn from their mistakes because they didn't have to pay for their mistakes. There was no personal accountability, no personal responsibility, no personal stewardship, no self-control, no motivation, no personal motivation. No, it was just, it was just spend more money. Now, type that concept. You want to know what's wrong with you and me? You want to want to know why we don't have the victory in life? I'll tell you. I'll make you a great parallel. Just as the most of the world looks at $4 trillion and says, oh, it's just a figure. Most of God's people look at the principles that I gave you today and said, oh, that's just a verse. It means nothing to you. Just like there's no value to $4 trillion, there's no value in your life to Bible principles. America's demise, it's not hard. It's not even confusing. It's not even complicated. And you can take that same concept and apply it to global warming, the war in Iraq and Afghanistan, and anything else you want to apply it in life. It's just a violation of one major principle that compounds into other major principles by which God set seven principles by the world has to run. And this country, any individual, and any country at all, will never, will never, never get past it when they break the accountability principle. You will never survive in life. You will never, 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 not today anyhow, you will never survive in life without an accountability system in your life. Now, I painted a pretty black picture. Now, just as I understand that this thing's a mess, I also understand that I'm not worried about it. Because the same principles that tell me how it's a mess are the same principles that show me that it's okay for me because I belong to Him. Now, I'm not saying that the principles, when you get in a jam like this, here's what you got to understand. It doesn't mean that you won't lose your house. It doesn't mean you won't lose your job. It won't mean that you don't lose everything physical that you have. But if you really understand the Bible and Bible principles, those things never really mattered much anyhow. Somebody said, well, what are you going to do if you lose your house and you have to live under a cardboard box on I-435? Then you know what? Based on the principles, I know this. I'll have the best cardboard box of anybody. 
I'll have room to cut windows in mine. I'll get a big refrigerator box that has a lid on it that I can make a sunroof on it. You'll be in a little Tide box. Or better yet, a toilet paper box. Because I believe no matter what the circumstances, the principles still apply. You see, I'm not worried about my 401. I'm not worried about anything out there. Because my principle says, Philippians 4.19, my God shall supply all of my need. You see, you want that verse to read, my God shall supply all of your wants. And he never said he would. Now my dollar bills, it says in God we trust. Somebody says, we want to take that off the money. I think you ought to. I don't trust in the government. I don't trust in the money. I trust in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him and he shall direct thy path. That's where I'm coming from. You say, I'm so, I'm so worried. I'm so burdened. Bob, what do I do? 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7. Casting all your care upon him for he cares for you. That's what you do. That's what you do. You say, well, man, I'm confused. Everybody's confused. What are we going to do? I don't know what you're going to do, but I'm going to do Philippians 4.11. Whatever state I find myself in, therewith I'm going to be content. And if I wind out under I-35 bridge and lose my house, I guarantee you I'll have the biggest cardboard box, double-walled cardboard box, windows in it, and I'll have a nice place. See, it's principles. It's principles. Now let's do one more real quick here and then we're going to be done. Let's take God. Let's take God. That's a good place to really start. How many times have we looked at God and said, boy, that's a complicated deal. Wow, God, you're so big and I'm so small. Wow, God, you're, you're so mighty and I'm so weak. Wow, God, you're so complicated. Boy, you're so hard to understand. You said, oh, in Isaiah 55, that your ways are my ways. My thoughts are my ways. Yeah, but even in that, God gave you a way to get on the same wavelength with him. You know what God did? This complicated God. I gave the guys an institute a while back, Proverbs chapter 9, verse 1. It says, wisdom hath builded her house. She had hewned out her seven pillars. And I showed them that doctrinally, doctrinally, that uh, those seven pillars there are the seven major truths that the Bible's built on. Historically, they'd be the seven spirits of God the way it operated in the Old Testament. Ah, but inspirationally, it's God, see? It's God. You want to understand God? You think God's complicated? You think God's hard? You think God's tough? You think he's approachable? You think that you have to spend 30, 40, 50 years before you build a relationship with God? You think because just Isaiah 55, 8, 9 said it was so hard and he thought one way, you thought this way, that you, it was unapproachable? You think you can't get there? Then you know what God did? God broke himself down into seven pillars. Seven being the number of perfection. You want to know God? Learn these seven pillars of God. Learn these seven principles about God and you will know God. You want to understand him? There are seven aspects to him. He took his humongous complication about himself and his eternalness, and he said, you know what? I'm going to make myself so even Bob Alexander could have a relationship with me. I'm going to break myself down into seven pillars of wisdom. Because God's wisdom. 
You know the first pillar is? It's truth. Absolute truth. There's no relationship with God without truth. Truth that never changes. That's what gets me through tomorrow. That's what gets me through today. The fact that I'm in a changing world with an unchanging book. The fact that if religion changes or they change their ideas or the country changes, and it's always in flux. It started out as a republic. Now it's in, a, it's in, a, it's in apostasy. It started out believing the Word of God. It winds up in apostasy without God anywhere. It changed. But the book never changes. Truth that never changes. Truth about everything in life, including ourselves. The second thing you've got, the greatest thing about God, and I think personally it's the greatest, it's the greatest single uh, aspect, uh, aspect of God, and that's forgiveness. You want to understand God? You forgive how God loved you when you were unlovable. You want to understand God? You understand God's forgiveness of you and me. How God forgave me. Because it forms the basis for you forgiving others. You know why so many of God's people have so many problems in their lives? They don't even know this. They don't even have a clue. You know that Bible says in Matthew chapter 6 that if you and I are a Christian and we don't forgive some other Christian for some other whatever they did and we don't forgive them, you realize at that point, on the basis God told you to forgive them, on the basis He forgave you, at that point when you refuse to forgive somebody, God just quits forgiving you. And your daily little sins, even though you just keep piling them up and saying, oh, Lord, forgive me. God says, sorry, can't hear you. I don't have any kids living at home, but you kids anymore, the little kids, I got the grandkids come over, and it's true of them too. But uh, it's true of my dogs, and I know it's true of your kids. (laughs) My dogs have selective hearing. You relate to this. They know words. Now, dogs can't reason, and dogs can't read. But dogs learn to associate, and they're smart in what they do. <clears throat> but my dogs know the words. They can be sound asleep, and I'll just, and I do a field test sometimes with this, and I'll say the word, treat. Where, where, where? I'll say, want to go out? Mm-hmm. Out, out, out. I get them out there. And I say, come on, let's go. Back in. <laughs> Buddy to Daisy. What did he say? Daisy said, I don't think he said anything. <laughs> hey, come on, let's go. I said, come on, guys, let's go. Let's go in. Let's go in. Let's go, let's go in, let's go in. They're just doing their own thing. When I say, hey, get in the house, then they come. Magically, the selective hearing goes off. Your kids are like that. I always tell parents when I'm talking about having their kids obey them, how many times do you want to tell your kid to do something? Who said once? Who said once? Once. You don't even have any kids. They're that old. She's telling me something that I need to know about. One time. You're right, Donna. One time. One time. But how many times do they do it? I've watched you for I watch you people. Come on, let's go. We're gonna go. 
It's not like saying goodbye at our church when the service is over, or Bible is over. It, there's, there's, there's 45 minutes of stage goodbyes. We can't just say, good to see you, sweetie. I'll see you next. You want to shake my hand? It's okay. Good to see you, honey. You're going to do what you don't want to. I'll just, good to see you. Oh, I've already got you cold. You've been spitting on me ever since I've been up here. And, you know, we can't do that. It's got to be goodbye, bye, bye. Bye again, goodbye again, you know. I'll watch you eat a shelter. Come over here. Now, I'm not going to tell you again. He's in his head. Yes, you are. You got brothers and sisters. Here's what they do. How many was that, Tim? That was six. We got two more before we got to start paying attention. I say all that to say this. We're like little children. And we not only have selective hearing when it comes to God, but you know what else we all do? We all have this problem. We have selective forgiveness. We like to forgive some people and then choose not to forgive others, don't we? It's what we do. It's what we do best. And you can't do that when it comes to God. We're going to study Calvinism here in a couple of weeks. You know what Calvinism is? It's selective salvation. It's God charged you, it's God charged you, and he didn't choose you. It's about you're going to heaven, you're going to heaven, you're going to hell. You're going to hell, you're going to heaven, you're going to heaven, you're going to hell. You know what? And it, God selected, selected. I don't know what they sing in those churches. I mean, you imagine a song service? Jesus loves me, sorry about you. <laughs> you're not one of the chosen few. You know, I don't know what they sing, man. Life is now sweet and my joy is complete because I'm saved, saved. No, you're not. Oh, okay. That's heresy. But then slow selectors forget it. You see, we're not Calvinist. We're not Calvinist in our theology. We're just Calvinist in our practice. We believe that God offered forgiveness to everybody, but we don't have to. You know what the next one is? Charity. Charity. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, if you have a King James Bible, it'll say charity all down through that chapter. If you have any other Bible, it'll take the word charity out and put the word love in. You know why? Because they don't understand the word charity. The word charity means unconditional love. Charity is the true word of love in the Bible. Charity is the word that God loves you without wanting anything back. That's hard for a society that has an ulterior motive behind everything it does. You know the next one? Light. Well, you don't go four verses in Genesis chapter 1 where the Bible says God divided the light from the darkness. God's, God's greatest attribute is contrast. Contrast. You know what the next one is? Giving. Where forgiveness may be the single greatest aspect of God, giving is His fundamental character. And we forget the fact that He, for God so loved the world, that He gave. God's been given to you ever since you got saved. You don't even thank Him for it. God's spared you and given to you and taken care of you in situations when you didn't even know about it. Some of you sit down and plop your carcass down and eat your hamburger, eat this and that, and never bother to thank your father for giving to you what he did. You know what? Maybe that's why God's going to take it all away, because maybe that's the only way we'll learn to be thankful to God. You know what the sixth one is? Sacrifice. We have absolutely no understanding for sacrifice. That's the reason why we don't serve him. We don't have an understanding of it. You know what the last one is? Long-suffering. Patience with others. Husbands patient with their wives. Homs and dads patient with their children. Children patient with their parents. People patient with other people. You know why? Because God had patience for us we need to have with others. Now you see, let me just say this, and here, here it is. If you want to know God, we're talking about knowing God. Oh, I just took a big old complicated God, brought him right down to where you could grab him. God down into seven concepts. Now, do you want to know God? Do you want to know God? 
then get your concordance, sit down, and go through those seven things. Sit down and learn those seven things backwards and forwards. Take them wherever they go. Not only are they seven principles, but you will find 150 other principles that will add to those principles. And at the end of the day, you will know who he is. Now, 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 now. Let's just take this. And here it is. Seven principles applied. You want to be like God? You, you want, when I talk about being like Christ, being Christ-like, being like God, you want to be like God? All right. If you want to know God, then you learn these seven principles. If you want to be like God, then you live these seven principles. It's just that simple. Now, what is complicated about that? I gave you enough theology in the last hour and a half that you could skate through life the rest of your life if you're willing to take the principles and to see how they work. Well, we got to close. Next week, we'll continue on and we'll look at these things and we'll We'll, we'll see how this thing works its way all the way down to the basic fundamental things in your life. How many of you own a gun? Let me see your hand. How many own 10 guns? <laughs> how many own 10 guns? How many own a, a 50 caliber? <laughs> Dare I ask, how many own a bazooka? <clears throat> The reason I ask that is this. I'll show you how far I'm going to take it down. You think owning a gun is your First Amendment right? No. Well, the First Amendment says you have a right to keep and bear arms. Huh? Second, all right, Second Amendment. That's right. The Second Amendment is love your wife as yourself. I forgot that one. <laughs> Second Amendment. How many believe that you have a right under the Second Amendment to keep your gun and have a gun? Good, good, good. Now, forget the Second Amendment. Throw it out. You don't even need it. You know why? Because when we're all done with this, I'm going to show you the principle in the Bible that says, not only do you have a right to have one, but you better have one. I'll show you where this thing goes. I'm going to give you down there. I'm going to show you the verses and show you how to treat your dog if you got one. I'm going to take you down there and show you how to treat your goldfish. I'm going to take you and show you a principle to show you the most basic fundamentals in life. I'm going to take you in a principle and show you why you should never have a bathroom uh, outside in your yard and always have one in your house. I'll show you a principle in the Bible that tells you why you should never hang a picture on the wall in your house. I'll show you some principles. I mean, we started big. We started with God bless America, and now we're down and we're with the God, and now when we get done with this thing and it all funnels down, it's going to be, what are you packing? <laughs> Let's pray.